0: Turkey has been convulsed by political protest for seven days. Now the Prime Minister... Despite the protests in Istanbul's Taksim Square and elsewhere, Turkey's Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan insists the plan to redevelop a park at the origin of the demonstrations will go ahead.
1: He's On coming... World Environment Day, those who began a protest to save Istanbul's Taksim Gezi Park have issued a much larger list of demands. It includes abandoning plans to redevelop the park, sacking police chiefs and the release of all arrested protesters. Welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Usman Ahmadani. The end of May 2013 saw protests break out all over Turkey. They were initially sparked by anger over the government's plans to build a shopping mall on Gezi Park in the heart of Istanbul. A few months before these protests started... I sat down in Istanbul with Andrew Finkel to put the political polarisation gripping Turkish society into historical context. Andrew has lived in Istanbul for over two decades, writing for both Turkish and English-language newspapers. His book, Turkey, What Everyone Needs to Know, was published last year by Oxford University Press. It's been described as combining the critical eye of the outsider with the compassion of the insider. The protests have cast doubt over the sustainability of Turkey's economic model, and yet Turkey has seen unprecedented levels of growth under the ruling AKP, relative to the financial crisis that it was in just over ten years ago. I began by asking Andrew about the long-term origins of this boom, which lie partly in Turkey's changing demography.
0: From zero to hero. The thing that I, I tried to highlight in the book, if uh, there's sort of two what they call unique selling points in in, in in marketing jargon. One is to look at the fact that Turkey is this fast-changing society and why is it this fast-changing society. And the very obvious reason is not just the economy, it's it's the shift in population. So from a rural society pre-war to an in, to an urban society post-war um, is a major shift and the shift that has taken place in my lifetime. So, you know, I first came to Turkey in the, in the mid-60s. Uh, Istanbul, where we're sitting now, it was a city of, I don't know, 1.5 million people. Now it's a city of 12 million, 14 million. Who knows exactly the figure? What this means is that during my lifetime, the city where I live has doubled in population doubled and then doubled again you know which is an extraordinary thing and 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 really it's to the history to my mind of post-war turkey is not you know somehow coming to terms with religion or this or that or the other thing it's coming to terms with this huge shift in 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 population and where people are and people's expectations and the political way in which that that Mass movement of people was managed. I mean, if you think about it, when I first came back to Turkey as a journalist in, in the late in 1989, this was the year of of revolution in in Central Europe and in Eastern Europe. So you had societies collapsing, falling apart, overthrowing their governments. How did this happen? It happened through the movement of people. So, you know, the very first story I did as a journalist in Turkey, or the first major story, was three hundred thousand. Bulgarian Turks fled Bulgaria, or were forced out of Bulgaria, came to Turkey. And that destabilized the regime at the time in Bulgaria, the Zhikov regime. You know, it was the movement of Eastern Germans through to Hungary. It was, you know, it was the movement of population which destabilized this country. The second really big story I did was the mass exodus of Iraqi Kurds. And after the first Gulf War in ninety one, I, I walked up a mountain, and there was a half a million people walking in my direction. Like an extraordinary spectacle, biblical spectacle but here was turkey with an equally important movement of population and yet in some ways this populace, this movement of people was politically managed that's what i really try and get at in in the book uh, so that, that that's that's really um, the first thing the second point i make is is that turkey went through a major transformation but it the timing of that transformation was different maybe from other societies so you know, for, again for eastern and central europe the great transformation was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the liberating effect of that. And suddenly you have these countries which were free to find their own political destinies, you know, the color revolutions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Turkey was a very ardent Cold War warrior. You know, it got its importance in the world from, from occupying the strategic position at the very edge of NATO. It was a, NATO's eyes and ears on the on the southern flank of the Soviet Union. It was, you know, it, was able in many ways to postpone its own transformation because it offered its allies, its Western allies, the this thing called strategic significance. Um, and I often, you know, the joke I make is that, you know, other countries have, you know, the curse of oil, the curse of having this resource which somehow makes development uneven or which creates social inequalities or which is as much curse as blessing. In Turkey's case, the curse was the curse of strategic significance, which got in the way of its own reform. So, you know, what I do, possibly in in a slightly artificial way, but I, I date the ending of the Cold War in Turkey, not to the collapse of the Soviet Union, but the reluctance of Turkey to support the US invasion
1: of Iraq in 2002. So in other words, the last decade has really been critical. And in a way, the root of this is demography,
0: well, certainly, demography is one reason, and 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 the political pressures that change in population created. Um, so suddenly, governments had to cater not just to the elites, but to the vast population who were demanding better services, access to health, access to education. Um, w- resented the inequalities of their own society. Resented the fact that they that they you know were being denied the, the sort of benefits of modernity which the elites in, in society enjoyed.
1: The protesters have shone a spotlight on the absence of accountability in the government's planning decisions. As well as Gezi Park itself, there's the controversial construction of a third bridge along the Bosphorus. Its foundation stones were laid on the very eve of these protests. Sections of civil society have tried to raise awareness about these issues for years. But as Andrew explained a few months before the protests, such voices have all too often been sidelined in political debates. So how has this demand for services, this migration to the cities, affected Istanbul's urban landscape? What have you noticed as a resident of Istanbul?
0: From my perspective, what I've noticed is the, just I suppose, the destruction, there's no other word for it, of, of the Istanbul that I knew, certainly when I came here as a boy. Um, it's almost bizarre to think about, but when I, where I first lived when I came here was on the European side of the city, the house where I lived in no longer exists, because a foot of the bridge <laughs> you know, is where, the, is where that house used to be, uh, the first Bosphorus Bridge, which was completed in 1973. And what did that bridge do? It basically became a sort of symbol of modernity, the metaphor for the link between East and West, but in practical terms, it opened up the Asian side of the city to commuting. So it led to the huge conurbation along the Sea of Marmara. So the The Bosphorus Bridge is famous or infamous in in planning literature as as a a route which created its own problems, as it were, which was there to solve the problem of traffic and yet created um, the need for a second bridge, and the second bridge created the need for a third bridge, which will create the need for a fourth bridge. And, of course, what what this does is it leads to conurbation, to the creation of housing, to enormous land speculation. But, of course, it's not just traffic which does it's Turkey's now part of the international economy, it's real estate market is no longer simply national. It's international people invest here in shopping centers and luxury apartments and whatever as part of you know, they're not necessarily Turks, they can be Russian or from Dubai or from San Francisco. It you know, it doesn't matter, but it's it's part of an international
1: market now. So going back to this bridge, so we see this whole contest between the government claiming that a new bridge is necessary to relieve traffic, and more critical skeptics perhaps saying it's all about land speculation and developing property. Um, how has this debate been covered in the Turkish press?
0: Well, when you say debate, it it, it hasn't. There hasn't really been the debate that I would like to see. Uh, I am certainly someone who, who loathes and opposes the possibility of a third bridge, but I don't seem to have <laughs> made much difference. Um, the reason I do so is because you know, I see it as answering none of the problems which the city has and, sim- and simply creating more problems what, where this third bridge will go. He's not in a place which will alleviate congestion, where there is congestion and traffic congestion in the city. It's, it'll be at the very mouth of the Bosphorus.
1: By the Black Sea, because the, the government claims it's necessary to get traffic, long-distance traffic, to go by this new bridge, slightly removed from the rest of Istanbul. Um, you don't buy this.
0: Well, this is, this is the argument they use for the second bridge. And very quickly what happened was that um, the second bridge became what's the word icebreaker for for the creation of, of of houses and development and business centers along either side of the bridge on the on the Bosphorus itself. So if you know if you if you look at the sort of space imaging of of the heat patterns along the second bridge, it's you know it's significantly warmer where the second bridge runs. You know there, there's so there's such a concentration of of housing and development and traffic where that second bridge is that it's actually affects the the climate of the city. And now they're proposing to do the exact same thing in the remaining green space of Istanbul, the, 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 the lungs of the city. You have to remember that Istanbul is... It's a unique ecosystem. It's um, the meeting of the warm air from the Aegean and Mediterranean and the cold air from the Black Sea. Um, there is... Uh, I mean, there's as many species of plant in Istanbul as there are in Britain. It's, it's an important ecosystem in its own right, this will disappear if, if the second bridge, a third bridge, I'm sorry, um, is
1: built. So apart from the environmental consequences, what does the way that the third bridge was announced reveal about Turkey's governance? Because the Istanbul municipality led by the mayor, Kade Topbas, claims that it was a department in Ankara which actually pushed the project through. Does this suggest that governance in Turkey is still top down despite the fact that there is a functioning city government.
0: Of course, it does, um, and indeed, not simply Mayor Topbas, but Mayor Erdogan, who was the mayor of the city in the in the mid nineties, described the bridge as as suicide for Istanbul. You know, he was very, he was an opponent of of the bridge, but now who took the decision to build the bridge? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. It happened in some back room somewhere. And, I mean, one could say it came out of the highway department, but, you know, who knows? That bridge could not, you know, no one could have taken the decision to build that bridge. Um, you know, and it was taken in, 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 uh, in private at the very highest level. Um, and so it is, you know, an example of a highly centralist and, and, and to my mind, rather dangerous process. Um, the, the fact that it's evaded public discussion. I mean, talking about third bridge, but now there's a proposal for... You know, a third airport, which is meant to be this huge entity,
1: um, If six runways. I think they announced that it would have a final capacity of 150 million, which seems insane.
0: And if you think of all the bruhaha in in Britain when they add, when they try and add one runway to an existing airport, and everyone lobbies and fights against it as as a environmental and noise and catastrophe, here you know, no one seems to blink. I mean, the, the whole debate. Over you know, huge decisions which affect the future of the city, um, the, the, the e, indeed even the climate uh, of the city seem to evade public processes. So it, it's you know from that point of view, it's 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 very discouraging. Particularly if you have the perspective that I have and came here when it was a you know slightly green and slightly you know abandoned city in the sixties. <laughs>
1: And what are the social consequences of all this growth and development and construction? For example, there's been a lot of controversy over the displacement of residents from Talabasha in in the centre of Istanbul, a relatively deprived area.
0: Talabasha, of course, is not the only neighbourhood. It's probably the best publicised neighbourhood where people have been moved out and, and the developers have moved in or people have been moved out forcibly. And then reassigned to live in places where they, which are not convenient for their work, or which they can't afford the upkeep of, and basically people are dislocated in a fairly random way. We've seen this phenomenon elsewhere, particularly China is a great example in Beijing, where where, where people are forced out of their out of their homes. Uh, it does create uh, unrest, but there are sort of pockets of unrest. I mean, I suppose in the, in the way the government calculates it that. You know, the benefits of this urban expansion outweigh the individual sad stories of people being moved out of their homes. I mean, we have not yet seen in Istanbul organised resistance to this sort
1: of development, but perhaps it may come, who knows. The culture wars between secular and religious elements of society has always been a defining fault line in Turkey, over issues from the wearing of headscarves to the consumption of alcohol but it's seldom appreciated how divisions over religion are overlaid with class dynamics indeed they sometimes play out in symbolic contestations over the use of public space in Istanbul what about the symbolic nature of these developments for example when the airport was announced the transport minister bin ali yildirim proclaimed mehmet the conqueror began a new era by conquering istanbul now istanbul is opening the door to the new era of the future what's the significance of all this kind of almost Ottomania that we see. That was the film Fethi 1453. Everywhere you go, you can find Ottoman-themed menus, soap operas about Suleiman the Magnificent.
0: I mean, if you have a party which represents the first and second generation urbanites, which represents the people who have, you know, traditionally felt themselves excluded from the economic goodies of the, of the, of the, of the republic in the, you know, 50s and 60s and even 80s, you know, to them conquest of the city is is a very powerful metaphor because it means them you know getting their share of, of the pie um, and so it, it you know this isn't the first government to, to exploit that metaphor the welfare party government which of which um, you know many of the current members of the, of the government had their political origins
1: the this was the more explicitly Islamist party which took power briefly in the 90s and from which the ones AKP is a breakaway. Exactly, the head of
0: that party, uh, Nejmatin Erbakan, very explicitly, you know, spoke of the you know the reconquista of Istanbul, the, the conquest of the city. Um, you know, the notion of building a mosque in Taksim was very much a sort of symbolic planting of the flag, taking the city back from the sort of infidels or the secularist establishment. So there is you know there is a slight sense of triumphalism about you know the rebuilding of the city and this, these huge. Projects which are somehow meant to be reestablishing the, the glory of, of Turkey as well as.
1: Um, but do you think it's got to do with the place of Istanbul in Turkey? Because in the early decades of the Republic, Istanbul was deliberately downplayed as the seat of the Ottomans as opposed to Ankara, which is where the Republic was founded. Do you think that this new revival of interest in the Ottomans has gone in tandem with this growing centrality of Istanbul to Turkey's economy and politics? Well
0: uh, undoubtedly that's that's the case. and as you said, um, um, you know the early years of the Republic was a different uh, was a deliberate disenfranchising of Istanbul. Um, power moved to Ankara, power moved inland, and indeed this government came to power as in part as a representative of the growing economic clout of of the rest of the country as opposed to Istanbul. Um, on the other hand, you know, the current Prime Minister was the mayor of the city, understands Istanbul very well, and, and all that wealth that's been generated in in the hinterland in Anatolia gets a higher return if you on on capital if you invest in property in Istanbul than if you invest in property in Konya. So Istanbul has become a magnet for but all even this the sort of recently formed capital. So so you know, it's, it's a distribution of the, of the rent, of the wealth of Istanbul to the rest of the country. But of course, it's, I don't know, the, the way I sometimes think of it is it's, a, it's like a sort of cannibal who, who runs out of food and starts eating himself. You know, it's, Istanbul is, some, is something, it's consuming itself. There will come a point when, when there's nothing left.
1: Apart from maybe Erdogan's Chamnijar Mosque project, um, what's happening with that? It's, is it a kind of vanity project on behalf of Prime Minister Erdogan to put his mark on the city, or does it represent something more?
0: What the Çamlıca Mosque is is this huge construction project on one of the most prominent parts of the city. Somewhere you can you, you'll be able to see this new mosque from pretty much anywhere. It's on the Asian side of the city, a place where there had never been such a huge mosque. Of course, there is a notion of triumphalism, a notion of you know putting your imperial signature on the on the city. But it's also, of course, a statement of incredibly bad taste. I mean, what what if you look at the design of this of this mosque? It's it's a it's a sort of copycat, you know, of the great, of the classical age. It's a, a replica of um, 16th century classical Sinan style mosque, of which there are really very good examples. Of those you know, on the historical peninsula. Um, so to build this sort of clumsy, awkward, out of proportion mess on the most prominent part of the city is, is you know, is, is is not giving perhaps the signal which which they hope to give. And of course, the bizarre irony is that the moment uh, Istanbul is building a, a much needed metro link, uh, which will take the underground train above ground across the Golden Horn to the old city, and of course, you know, as much as I complain about traffic I can't complain about them constructing a a public transport system that that actually works but the way it's designed is the bridge across the golden horn is much higher and much more elaborate than need have been and so it actually interferes with the view of of what is possibly the most important Ottoman mosque in the city of the Soleimani and UNESCO of course is complaining about this so on, on one hand you're destroying the view of the most important Ottoman structure of the city and and then at the same time you're building this ersatz hubristic ottoman mosque on the asian side of the city it it beggars belief really
1: it's kind of nostalgia meets kitsch at its worst but but
0: it's, it's not a very happy marriage of styles no
1: unesco actually threatened to kick istanbul off its list of world heritage sites didn't it
0: Yes, for both both for the Suleimania Bridge and for its neglect of the upkeep of the historical city. I mean, at the moment, for example, there is not even a an inventory of his, historical properties of the old city, and there's you know, and everyone talks about building a sort of master plan for the the old city. You know, a plan which would you know keep tourist buses out, which would allow the circulation of tourists, make it maybe make it a pedestrian zone, and, and whatever. There is no sort of proper planning to preserve the real gem that Istanbul is. And yet, um, and, and the reason perhaps one can only suspect is that such a, you know, such procedures would get in the way of the commercial exploitation of existing historical properties. There's
1: been unprecedented anger among many Turks that the media didn't cover the protests properly for days after they broke out. One of Turkey's leading dailies, Sabah, didn't even put the protests on its front page. Meanwhile, instead of reporting the news, CNN Turk aired a Penguin documentary. This comes after growing concerns that it's getting more and more difficult to criticize the government. Last year, the Committee to Protect Journalists claimed that Turkey had the most journalists in jail in the world, more than even China or Iran. I asked Andrew to explain how the media really worked in Turkey.
0: As the country became more progressive, modern, as the economy developed, they would... It would use more carrots than it would use sticks. You don't need repressive mechanisms to maintain order in, in, in a flourishing democracy, and yet it never seems to accept this. And various, you know, issues and problems seem beyond its control. And one of those problems, of course, is the problem with its Kurdish population. And how do you answer that? The demands for what are essentially minority rights, the, the ability to use your language, use your education, you know, have decentralized government, is, is something that Turkey's never been able to entirely cope with. Um, and it still requires the stick. And the stick that it uses is, or the stick that it has been using recently, has been, what is in a sense... A policy of, 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 of detention, of pre-trial detention. It's like it's almost like internment in Northern Ireland and, and, and at the height of the the troubles there. So there are a vast number of, I mean, there are thousands. I, I don't know the exact number. Some say nine thousand, some say eight thousand. Know, if it's only five thousand, what difference does it make? Um, people who are, you know, party, you know, essentially. Kurdish activists separatists not necessarily people who who use violence or, or resort to violence but people who you know who, who regard themselves as part of a, an opposition and a lot of these people now find themselves in jail and so it's inevitable that in their numbers there will be a large number of journalists but there's also a large number of mayors you know so, um, and our assistant mayors or deputy mayors so the way I look at it is that um, I mean, the story is that I, I, I once went to a restaurant in my neighborhood and I asked for a cup of coffee after my meal and, and they said, no, no, we don't do coffee. And I said, that's okay, just, you know, they, they make it across the street, why don't you just bring it over? And they, they said, oh, we can't do that because if we did that for you, then everybody would want it, which which was a slightly silly response. And and so my, my response to sort of journalists, you know, wanting less journalists in jail is, you know, it's not just journalists in jail, it's every you know it's, we just can't ask for ourselves we have to ask for everybody if they if they let journalists out of jail they'd have to let <laughs> other people out of jail. I see it as part of a, 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 a not so much a, a deliberate bullet pointed at the press but as a sort of general dragnet in which of course journalists are, are suffer as well.
1: But as a journalist, or perhaps as an activist as well, what are the red lines or taboos that you can't write about? Do you think people end up resorting to self-censorship?
0: Let me sort of summarise my experiences in the Turkish press, because in addition to work running for Western papers, I've also written for Turkish papers, and I've done so since the mid-90s. I was, I've been a columnist in three or four different uh, Turkish-language newspapers. Anyway, the first newspaper I worked for, the proprietor was eventually arrested for petty fraud. The second newspaper I worked for, the proprietor was on the run from the serious fraud squad. The third newspaper I worked for, the proprietor was arrested for major fraud for having embezzled a bank of $0.8 billion. And I've worked for others. To my mind, the problem with the Turkish press has to do with the government. It also has to do with the structure of ownership and why people own newspapers. Do they own newspapers because they want to sell advertising space and, and sell their product and inform people, or, or are they trying to use the newspapers as leverage for Gaining financial advantage in non-press sectors of the economy. The answer is the second. You know, someone has to look at the structure of ownership as much as the as the government's attempt to manipulate the press. And the government c- couldn't manipulate the press if newspapers were genuinely independent. So, I mean, there are they're not very good newspapers, but there are newspapers which are independent. I mean, there was a very was a very highly dedicated. Oppositional press that's quite loony called Suizju. It's a newspaper, and it attacks the government every day. You know, and and it's immune to government reprisal because it doesn't. You know, it doesn't. It's not trying to to, to sell anything but newspapers. Um, whereas the large, the major newspaper groups in Turkey all have all have put themselves in the position where they benefit from government grace and favor, and the most sort of egregious example of this, for example, is is a newspaper called Sabal, in which the which is owned by a company whose CEO is the prime minister's son-in-law, and which was the the purchase price of the the newspaper was in part financed by two state banks, um, which had never invested in media before. Yes, the government um, puts pressure on the press, but the press is is only too happy to be pressurised.
1: There are reports now of graffiti on the streets of Istanbul proclaiming that nothing will ever be as it was before. Whether or not this is true, we'll have to wait and see. But Andrew Finkel concluded this interview with a warning of what might happen to Istanbul if current policies remained in place. So lastly, looking ahead at the next 10 years, what would you say your biggest hopes were and biggest fears were for Istanbul?
0: I'm very anxious that Istanbul will, anxious in the sense of fearful, that Istanbul will not reach a tipping point beyond which it becomes a totally unmanageable city. You know, at the moment, car ownership in Istanbul is actually quite low, and yet it has a fearsome problem of traffic. Um, what happens if, if more car? You know, as is expected, more and more cars will come onto the road every day. You know, what will be the implications of this? I think you know there has to be a whole change, mindset change in the city that people realize that you know the, the motor car doesn't rule the city. That people have to go places by boat or by public transport other forms of public transport. I'm afraid, you know, of of the erosion of green spaces in the city. I'm I'm afraid of the creation of, you know, at the moment, what has been remarkable about Istanbul is that it's, Preserved its sense of community. Um, uh, you know, Istanbul is a real. You know, every, of course, every city has crime, and every city has violent crime. But I think the statistics in Istanbul show that it's actually a much safer city than many other cities. And I'm, you know, and I'm concerned that the creation of unplanned communities or roughly planned communities in new housing will create these sort of communities which are no longer held together. And no amount of huge mosques and religiously inspired people will, will um, keep those communities together. So I think this is something that one should be concerned about. I don't know, there there there's there's a sort of famous poem by, by the uh, Turkish poem Tefik Fikretu, which basically is that Istanbul's is sort of this this uh, this woman who's had a hundred husband and yet still remains a virgin. You know, that that, it, that Istanbul is is conquered, yes, but it also conquers conquers its would-be conquerors. I mean, I worry that that may no longer be the case, that um, Istanbul may actually succumb.
1: Conquered by never-ending construction.
0: By those who who would exploit its natural advantages, yes.
1: On that slightly dark note, thank you very much, Andrew Finkel.
0: My pleasure, thank you.